Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. I'm the author of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure, which is going to be available here March 23rd of 2023. If you're listening to this after that, good news, it's already available. Just go get your copy. Otherwise, keep an eye out for it. See if it's up for pre-order yet and secure your copy. It's Indiana Jones as a worm. It's a worm. He gets scooped up by a robin. She flies him off, but he manages to wriggle free only to be dropped on the roof of a human house. How is he going to get down? And when and if he does, he's going to have to deal with warring ants. He's going to have to deal with a koi pond. He's got all every. The thing about being a worm is everything in the backyard is out to get you. So Rob Worm has got his work cut out for him. Keep an eye on that. Something you can get right now today is my other middle grade series, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. There's three books in that trilogy available now. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some horror stories for older readers. You can find out more about those. And more importantly, you can find interviews with thousands of editors, literary agents, authors, book people, the world's best people at middlegradeninja.com. Later this year, I'm going to be releasing my first spooky middle grade story, Jim's Monster. Look forward to that. I'll be telling you more about that as we get closer to the release date. But I want to plant that seed because we're going to be talking about all things spooky middle grade today. Couldn't be more excited. My guest is none other than Lindsay Carey. Lindsay, thank you so much for sitting through that ridiculously long intro. Welcome to the show. Thank you. No, I loved it. You hooked me with Indiana Jones is a worm. I'm ready. <laughs> Good. Uh, pass on your readiness to all everyone who's watching or listening to us and go out there and get that worm, folks. It's going to be a good time. So uh, esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing their biography or their books. Why would I do that to you when you're right here and you could do a much better job? <laughs> Uh, so if you would give uh, esteemed uh, audience an overview of your background and we'll go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Lindsay. I'm a writer of spooky middle grade stories for both Simon & Schuster and Sourcebooks. Um, I currently have four books on shelves. Um, actually brought them to just show you the covers. So we have Peculiar Incident, which came out in 2017 which seems so long ago. I feel like publishing years are like dog years or something like that. This feels like the old book baby, but, um, and then Scritch Scratch, which was 2020 and What Lives in the Woods, which was 2021. So you're seeing two pandemic books, which is a little bit scary for any author, but, and then the most recent book that came out is The Girl in White. This just came out in September. Um, and I'm so proud of all of them. I'm thrilled to be here talking about them. Honestly, writing has been a passion of mine for as long as I can remember. And the chance to do this as my job is really just a dream. Honestly, I wake up every day and I'm like, people are reading my words and people are excited to read my words. And that's magical. I always want to, uh, the setting can be things, two pandemic books so far. <laughs> <laughs> I know so far. I mean, honestly, you know, Scritch Scratch, um, this one that I showed you, this one came out in 2020, really at the height of the pandemic. So no in-person events, no events really at all. Like there was very little um, that I was able to do for the book. Obviously schools, most schools were not in session. And I remember thinking at the time that that book, um, was never going to find its readers, which was a really sad thought to me because it was a book that 
um, blended together two things that I really, really love, which is history and ghosts. Um, and I felt very passionate about it and all of the cool Chicagoland stories and, and landmarks that are in that book. But, you know, this year, this past year, that book, I mean, it, it's really been finding its readers. I think it's on 10 state award lists. Um, and it's it won a major award here in Chicago, which was a huge shock for me. Um, so I've been really, really grateful that it has kind of found its way into the light after all of that. But yeah, a lot of us have been through some rough years in publishing with the pandemic. It was just kind of things ground to a halt a little bit. Books still came out, but it it wasn't the same. I've just been uh, enjoying uh, Scritch Scratch myself. It's a wonderful esteemed audience. While we're there, we'll go ahead and give esteemed audience kind of an overview of what they need to know about Scritch Scratch. Sure, sure. So Scritch Scratch follows the story um, of Claire Coaster, who is 12. And Claire is, um, she's a very science-minded character. So she really looks at the world through the eyes of a scientist. And that's kind of how she um, make sense of things. It's how she processes things and it makes her comfortable to her. Science is kind of black and white. Right. And so she likes that comfort and that sensation. Her father is kind of the exact opposite of her. He's a little bit more eclectic and he believes in otherworldly things. He runs something called the spirits tour in Chicago, which is a ghost tour bus. And we actually do have these in Chicago. So the book was inspired by an actual ghost tour bus that I went on here in Chicago. So these are buses that take their passengers instead of to say, um, look at buildings and things like that. They take you to the most haunted places in Chicago. So Claire dislikes this bus. She dislikes her father's job. She finds it all to be embarrassing and something she doesn't want anything to do with. But because I like to torture my characters a lot, um, one weekend, her father is shorthanded on the bus and he asks her to help out. And there's really no option. And being the dutiful daughter that she is, she goes on the spirits bus and she discovers a couple of things. So first of all, it's not as silly as she expects it to be. It's not kind of pop out boo haunted house type scares. It's it's Chicago history that's real. And it's actually a lot darker than she expects it to be. And it's frightening. Um, and then as she leaves this bus, just when she thinks she's made it through the night, um, unfortunately, some very creepy, unexplainable things start happening to Claire, things that she can't explain with her beloved science. And she begins to question whether or not she has been right about um, ghosts not existing all of this time. I loved this book. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen it, but for your listeners who have not seen it, um, I got this amazing map on the interior of this book. And um, up until this moment, I really thought maps were reserved for fantasy books. Um, I didn't expect to ever get one in one of my spooky middle grades, but these are all actual locations in Chicago that people think are haunted for one reason or another. And they're all equally creepy and delightful. Um, and I just love the fact that I had a chance to kind of shine a light on a lot of that obscure history because some of this is is stuff that people who even grew up in Chicago don't know or don't remember and that's the most fun is seeing people explore that and getting emails saying wait a minute did this actually happen or was that fictionalized and what I can say to people oh that part that actually happened they're stunned stunned so it was an amazing book to play with 
Fantastic. The audience, if, they, if you head to Lindsay's website right now, there's an interactive version of that map where you can click uh, on each of the locations and, and pull up uh, more details. What, what is your website address? It is lindsaycurry.com. And you did awesome. your research. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm impressed. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> but lindsaycurry.com, there's all kinds of great stuff, but that map is, is just fantastic. I would think that that's such a wonderful resource that there, right away, I thought that the author in me thought um, that's just no shortage of potential marketing opportunities for you living right there in Chicago. How have you been able to use that so far to, to reach readers? Well, I do. First of all, I do a lot of um, school visits in the Chicagoland area. I think obviously the book really appeals to people in Illinois and Chicago because they can work into the class curriculum and talk about that history. Um, and it is on the Rebecca Cottle list this year. It's a nominee and that's our state list for Illinois, which is really exciting. That means it's finding even more readers and more students and readers, I think, are now having the opportunity to, or at least thinking about researching their city and their state. And I, I know when I was that age, um, believe it or not, history was probably my least favorite subject. Um, I really didn't enjoy history. And in my mind at the time, it was all dates and wars, and I really struggled to get into it. But I think that's because um, I hadn't really found kind of my my niche. I hadn't found what interested me um, in history. And obscure, creepy, forgotten history, not just Chicagoland, but anywhere, which is why you see my books take place in a variety of different places. Now I'm starting to kind of move out of Chicago, but um, really fascinates me. So I love seeing students get into it as well. That's why I put the interactive map up there. Um, because when you have the chance to do your own research into something, I think it can kind of spiral. You know, you may start here and then you may start thinking, hey, this is actually really cool. Maybe I don't dislike history. Maybe I want to research more. Or maybe there's something in my own city or state that could be fascinating and I just have to uncover it. Um, so that's a, a really cool thing about being able to talk to students in this area in particular. And then obviously living so close to a bunch of these, you know, for lack of a better word, scary places. Um, is very fun at Halloween and throughout the year because I certainly do take a lot of little field trips and prowl around the graveyards and the areas that I write about. My husband calls me a ghoul because you generally can find me in one of these places <laughs> researching. Uh, but yeah, it's great. It's great. Chicago has no lack of scary stories and scary history. That's for sure. Well, nice thing. Uh, I, I also had trouble with history. I think what turned the tide for me when I, when I was younger was, like, oh, these people are already dead. And let's focus on the now. What's what's interesting now? And also the thing that frustrated me is these, why are they fighting for the throne over and over again? Yes. Why are they why are they constantly fighting wars? Those idiots. Oh, thank God people are so smart now and we're past that. And then you get a little bit older and you look around like, oh, my God, we're so not. It's the same <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's the exact thing. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I know exactly what you mean. I think, you know, it's it's funny. I think as you grow older, you just are exploring things with a little bit more freedom, you know, than you did when you were younger. And that's one of the things I love about writing the books that I do. I all of them so far, including the one I have coming out next fall, which I'm sure we'll get to, they all have some sort of root in history. Um, some more than others, like Scritch Scratch is 
a lot um, rooted in history, but all of them have something. Um, and I like the fact that I'm able to explore that in a way that I think when I was younger would have interested me, right? Like the ghosts are, ghosts are classic, you know, everybody, at least everybody that that's like me, um, the, the spooky folk, right? We, we enjoy um, a good ghost story. And so I feel like they're a good vehicle to kind of snag the reader and get you in and get you excited. And then that history kind of comes in and surprises you, you may not know you're going to be getting it, but you do. And it's so fun to write. We will absolutely talk about it found us coming what September, right? Yeah. But I want to I want to stick with ghost and history. I do love the idea of, of if you're learning about haunted history, then it's not history, history. There's there's that fun element. Maybe you're going to uncover the truth about about ghosts. Plus, if there's a bunch of spirits hanging around, is that really history? That, that feels contemporary. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh huh. It's a weird it's a weird little blend there. As I was uh, reading about uh, the, the dad character, I kept thinking of, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Richard Dolan. Um, he hosts a podcast uh, radio program. He's been around. He's, he's, he's an alien guy. He's doing okay. oh. the, the, the history of UFOs. And okay. is, I, I want to be very kind because he was very nice to me. He um, I reached out to him and he gave me some advice when I was working on my long UFO epic, The Book mm -hmm. of David, available now. And, uh, but he is he gets very into all the all the all the secret history and by the time he puts it together for you we realize that he sees the world so so much different and and has for so long that we don't live in the same reality yeah. the, the things that are just givens for him are not givens for everybody else and he's just he's a fascinating character and i i was curious but it sounds like you you haven't heard of him but i'm like that this is richard dolan if richard dolan had a bus tour that's who this is <laughs> that's amazing actually the name does sound familiar because my husband and i are both obsessed with um with ufo stuff and especially all of these new reports being released and so definitely the name is familiar you know i will tell you the dad in scratch scratch is loosely based on someone here in chicago so remember i told you i went on a ghost tour bus here in chicago so that tour bus was run by a friend of mine who is an author and historian in chicago named adam selzer adam selzer runs something called mysterious chicago so if you want to fall down a interesting Chicago rabbit hole at any point. Adam knows everything about everything, especially if it's uh, something unusual that happened here. Uh, I could walk into, and this happened, um, I was in Graceland Cemetery. My husband and I were trying to find um, a particular grave, and Graceland is over 100 acres. It's it's enormous, right in the middle of the city, and we couldn't find it. I couldn't find it on a plot map. I was really struggling. <clears throat> then I texted Adam, and he said, "Up, oh, go over by the chapel and call me when you're there, and I'll give you directions." Not not even he wasn't even in the graveyard. Literally walked me to it. That's how much knowledge this guy has about who's who, who lived in Chicago, where they're buried, what they did. Um, and it was his tour bus and the experience that night that really shaped Scritch Scratch, um, his knowledge and the way he gets kind of lost in these stories as he's telling them. And I loved the idea of taking someone like that who was so passionate and wholeheartedly into something and then giving him this tween daughter who is so opposite um, and at the outset of the book, pretty close-minded um, as well about her father's passions and what he believes in and how excited he got about these things. 
Um, and that was just a really fun, a fun relationship to play with. I know that you, because it's right there in your bio on Main Street, that you've never had a paranormal experience. So I'm sure everybody in the world asks you, have you ever seen yes. a <laughs> I'm um, always looking for them. They don't reveal themselves <laughs> to me, okay? They're, they hide when you come. Oh, what's that? I know. Someone's they're like, oh, Jesus, me again. <laughs> this lady's always here. <laughs> what? Um, I, I'm assuming that you are, if not a believer, open to believing. So what's the most compelling evidence that you've, you've come across for a ghost? Um, so, yes, I definitely do believe in ghosts. I get this question from students all the time and, you know, at school visits and even in, in email. And I'm very honest with them. You know, if you can't prove to me that something doesn't exist, I have a tendency to be open minded about it. Um, and the other thing is I spend enough time researching these areas that have a very um loaded history, right? A very dark history or complicated history um, that I've had weird, oh gosh, I guess the, the best way to say it is vibes or feelings in some of these places. Um, probably the most notorious one to me was, let me get my map here. So there's this um, location in Scritch Scratch right here called the Alley of Death. <laughs> it's ominous. <laughs> it's a really cheerful title. Um, the Alley of Death is downtown and um, it is just a an alley now um, that I don't want to give away all the history for anyone who's, you know, including yourself. You may not be at the point yet where you've come across this, but um, for future readers as well, but it has a very complicated, dark history. Um, and there was a very tragic events that happened in that alley. And even though when I was there, one of the times um, that I visited, it was well lit and actually for Chicago alley, pretty clean and, you know, unscary. Um, I, I had a really bad feeling there. Um, very kind of unwelcome. Yeah. It's hard to explain, but I, all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I felt, um, like I wanted to leave. Um, and sometimes those feelings, I feel like we're not manufacturing them. Um, you know, I didn't go there that day looking for ghosts. I went there to see how the area felt because I wanted to be able to write the scene in the book as vividly as possible. I want to make sure my readers feel like they're there with my characters. So if I can, I always visit, um, it's better than Google earth. If it's possible, I always try to visit where I'm writing about that was my goal that day, um, but I walked away feeling very, very unsettled. So yeah, that's that kind of thing has happened to me more than once, and I it's difficult to explain. I always thought um, anybody who, who watches the shows knows I'm a huge Batman fan, but I've always kind of scoffed that Batman's parents were murdered in Crime Alley. I thought, oh, well, that's that's a little on the nose, but I think Alley on Alley of Death maybe maybe tops that. Even title. more on the nose, yeah. The Alley of Death. I think the full title of it, if you're ready for to get even more sinister, I think the full title is the Alley of Death and Mutilation. That is, I think, the full official title. That just seemed a little much for the math <laughs> for, the, for my readers, but I do think that that might actually be what it's called in real life. I think the only way that could be more unsettling if it was alley of death and mutilation where you will die, Rob. Yes, oh, yes. Oh Come into this alley and your death is imminent. That's, yeah. <laughs> Here's a photo of you already dead. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. 
So and I'm always I, I, I talk to a lot of writers who like to get their get their hands dirty, get out there, uh, see, you know, my 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 friend Mike Mullen, uh, who wrote the Asheville trilogy, I am convinced has eaten a little bit of human flesh because he wrote <laughs> animals. He's he's just that meticulous. Yeah. He swears he hasn't, but uh, no one might. Oh, no. Um, um, but um, I'm always curious because we're writers, because at the end of the day, we're going to make up at least half of this, if not more. Um, what is it that going there, no, to the alley of death and mutilation, where you're going to potentially bump into some of these these terrifying things? What is it that that gives you that you can't get on Google Earth? So it's I kind of liken it to the experience of um, watching a scary movie for one, right? Like there's something about scary movies for me, not all of them. I have boundaries and I always tell, you know, my readers that it's good to have boundaries with scary things. There's good scary and there's bad scary. But um, if we're talking good scary, right, um, for one, uh, there's a little bit of an adrenaline rush, you know, I mean, I'm not a roller coaster person, but I am a little bit of an adrenaline junkie in that way. And I enjoy going somewhere um, that feels creepy that I can research in person, provided that I know I'm safe, right? That's another thing. I always make sure that, you know, wherever I'm going, it is a safe place, Um not all of Chicago is particularly safe. So you have to be careful with things like that. But, um, and then there is, there's so much about being somewhere in person in terms of the writing part. And I'm sure you, you do things like this as well, where, um, I can't use all five of my senses with Google earth, right? I, I want to write a really vivid scene. And for me to do that, um, the best way possible is for me to go there and actually use all five of my senses. So I want to see what it feels like. Um, does it feel damp? Is it warm? I want to see what it smells like. Um, I want to see what it sounds like. Is it, is it quiet? Is it eerie? Is it loud? Does it sound like Chicago? Does, does the sound of the city fade away when I'm there? Um, putting all of those senses together is what helps me bring those scenes to life. And that is hard to do with Google Earth. Now, I will say that, you know, there weren't very many silver linings to the pandemic, but one was that we got a lot more virtual tools out of that than we had before. I think a lot of things went virtual that never would have considered doing that and have virtual options. I mean, you can look at the catacombs in Paris now virtually, and that's not something you could do before. So not all of us have the ability to go everywhere that we're writing about, um, whether or not we want to. Uh, but when I can, I like to do that because it's a feeling that is just too hard to replicate online. It sounds like you're not only using your your five senses. There's a sixth sense when you're in the alley of death and mutilation, where you're. Mm -hmm. you're sensing the, the uh huh. Uh huh. I will say, generally, when I'm researching, there is one sense I don't use because I'm frequently in graveyards and such. I definitely don't taste anything. We did just talk about that. I've never tasted anything in the graveyard. I'm. I may be a little ghoulish, but that's beyond what any of us need. So uh, I stick with my other senses. But yeah, there is there is another feeling there sometimes, you know, and I know it sounds a little bit wacky to people if they don't spend much time in places like this. But anywhere you go that has that much history, um, you know, it's like uh, a few summers ago, we took our kids to Edinburgh and Scotland and we spent a lot of time there and it's it's just so old. There's so much history. And these buildings you walk in, 
there is a feeling with all of them. They have a personality and a character. And that's kind of how the places I write about are to me as well. That's ultimately what makes me write about them. Sometimes I experience them in person, not even thinking I'm going to write anything about them. And then it's the feeling that changes my mind. So uh, you you mentioned good scary and bad scary. Uh, what's the difference? For me, good scary is the kind of scary where um, it's removed enough from reality that I'm not going to have nightmares, right? Um, I'll give you an example. My favorite horror franchise in the world is Scream. Okay. I love the Scream movies. I've loved them ever since my husband and I then in college drove through a snowstorm to go see the first scream because it was not in our dinky little town showing in a movie theater. Um, those are a blend of classic kind of silly horror tropes and comedy. They are more like comfort food to me. Um, there's another kind of scary that's a, a darker and a little bit too real world, a little bit too, Hey, this, this is in the headlines, right. For me that I'm uncomfortable with. And I think when we're young, we don't like to draw those boundaries because it makes us feel babyish or feel embarrassed. Um, and I've learned as I've gotten older that those boundaries actually keep us healthy um, and that they're a good idea. And so I'm always telling readers whether or not they love my books, even if they want to love my books, if you are reading something, it's just like watching a movie. If you're reading something and it doesn't feel good anymore um, and you have a bad feeling, it's okay to stop. I don't care if it's my book. It, it could be my book. It could be anyone else's book. Um, those boundaries are safe and they're good and they're healthy to have. So, um, yeah, I think it, it comes down to feeling, you know, that, that vibe you get. So what's a recent example of something where you said, no, not for me. I'm going to put my boundary up against that. Um, let's see, probably I can't think of anything in book form, but I can definitely think of when it comes to movies, I don't like anything torturous, right? Like I don't like anything. If people are going to be breaking into a house, I need to know what they're going to be doing in that house. Does the blurb start with an unsuspecting family on vacation is targeted by a group of whatever? I probably am not going to like it, but if it's something like, um, <laughs> Teens on a trip to a cabin in the woods end up, you know, at, like, you know what I mean? There's a real difference in the feeling of those two things. Um, and so I, if I start feeling something going the wrong way for me, going sideways, and my husband, my husband usually can tell it just by reading the blurb of something and he'll say, oh, you're not going to like that. Um, then I'll turn it off. Oh, I know what movie frightens me. And it's old. It was a remake, Straw Dogs. Um, was a remake of, of an, I never even saw the older movie, but I didn't like, I didn't like the feeling of that at all. That one had gave me that kind of icky feeling. Makes sense. And your husband, he's a horror fan also then. Mm, yes. I wish you could see our, uh, our horror figure collection is to my left. We've got, it's a year round display. It's not just for Halloween. <laughs> I've got a giant Sam from Trick or Treat up and everyone's always like, oh, you have Halloween decorations up. And I'm like, no, just Sam. Oh, and there's a skeleton over here, but he's up year round too. <laughs> <laughs> See, for me, movies, uh, video games, any of that, that's all fun. 
Uh, even the really gross ones, it's fine. It's going to a cemetery, going to a haunted <laughs> That's where I'm going So the places where I always am. Oh, you're so crazy. Next time you're in a gravestone or a gravesite, eat just a little bit of the moss off the stone. You'll want a newberry. I think that's what's yeah, missing. That's it. That's what I need to do. That's what's been holding me back all this time, right? I'll just grab a clump of freshly churned up dirt. How about that? <laughs> Won't even look at the name on the grave. I'll just grab a mouthful and we'll see what happens. Live stream it. I, I don't want to yeah. miss it. <laughs> yeah. I've live streamed some funny things in graveyards before. I actually scared myself really badly in one once because I like to test ghost legends here in Chicago. We have a lot of ghost legends. Um, and one of our more famous ones is in Graceland Cemetery. Um, there is a mausoleum um, that's it's the, the person's name on it is Ludwig Wolf. And this mausoleum is really uh, unusual because it's not um, fully above the ground. There are steps going down. It's like built into the side of a hill. So almost like a bunker type thing. Um, and as you descend these steps, as you're going down, it, it just, it gets darker and colder and right away is kind of a chill up your spine feeling. But the legend is that if you knock on the door of Ludwig Wolf's tomb, something will knock back from inside. Now, I, I think all of us, like the first inclination is, okay, that's, that's called an echo. <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> um, but I have done this several times. And I will tell you, at least one of those times I ended up fleeing that area. I was filming um, and I, I knocked the first time, you know, I was videoing. I was like, Ooh, see what we hear, you know, being kind of silly about it. And I didn't hear anything. And then I put my hand through, there's big bars. Um, back from the days of grave robbers, big um, metal bars on the outside, put my hand through to knock a second time. And there was this really loud bang, just one bang that came from inside um, the tomb. I have no idea to this day what that was, but um, I ran back to my car um, filming at the same time. There were other people. It's a very picturesque graveyard. So in the fall, there's generally quite a few people taking pictures of trees. And um, because so many of the mausoleums and headstones are so historic, taking pictures of all the architecture as well. And I'm sure they thought I was absolutely losing my marbles as I was running back to the car, but it was really unsettling. No clue what that was. No clue. I don't know if you would have liked it. No, for sure. <laughs> Go and tell me about it. I uh, I like the virtual reality haunted house because if it gets too intense, oh, the helmet's off. We're done. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a little bit more than that. You know, I will say this though. All of those, and this is what I tell, um, you know, young readers who watch that as well. All of those tombs have ventilation somewhere. Like they're not airtight. Um, they have a, a vent somewhere. This one has it in the top. It's like a big circular thing. Um, and sometimes those vents are, you know, big enough that maybe like, you know, leaves, maybe a small rodent or something could get in. I don't know, but something would have had to be pretty substantial to make that, that sound. It was a loud sound. So when you're going to these uh, terrible haunted places, <laughs> actually, the fact that you added the word terrible. <laughs> no, they're they're terrible. You're great. You're, these you're, horrifying you're, places. You're, you're Laura Croft. It's the places I'm concerned about. <laughs> uh, so when you're uh, when you're Laura Crofting around, do you have like a like a vial of holy water or a Bible? What are, what are you using to protect yourself? 
I have a notebook so that I my old brain doesn't forget the things that I see and hear and smell and experience. So I always have a writing notebook with me, but that's about it. That's about it. In fact, there is one graveyard um, near Chicago. I think it's in Midlothian, Illinois, that I haven't been to because it makes my husband apprehensive because it is an abandoned cemetery, but it is kind of sandwiched inside of a nature preserve now. So it's very, it's much more remote than anywhere else I visit. Like you have to leave your car and then kind of trudge through some um, timber, I guess, really to kind of get to it. Um, but I, I definitely need to get there because I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating one. We don't often think about ownership of graveyards and how they've changed hands in some cases or stopped being graveyards where people are actively interred. But this one in particular, um, it's just been sitting for a long time. Uh, obviously it's experienced some vandalism and things like that, but the images of it online are really haunting. How'd you get into this hobby? Um, you know, I don't really know, except to say that I do remember from a young age being fascinated with the concept of ghosts. Um, I remember when I was small, my grandma, who also equally shared a fascination with UFOs as well. Um, and, and, you know, the implications of that, but she once told me, I, I don't know, I was probably in second or third grade that, she fell asleep on her couch one night and woke up and there was a gentleman um, like apparition almost standing at the foot of her couch. And she said he was thin and wearing a suit and a, in a bowler hat. Um, and she said that he just nodded at her and then essentially vanished. And that image always kind of stuck with me because she did have, um, like me, a very vivid imagination, but she also seemed very convinced that she was awake um, and that she had seen this. And she said she did not feel any fear um, or anything because she had the distinct feeling that whoever that person was, was not there to harm her. Um, so I, I think maybe from a young age, I started thinking about um, ghosts and spirits and how a person, if indeed they are real, might get trapped um, in that realm um, or why they might be there and what they might want, right? Um, and that's something I like to explore with my books a lot is, you know, there there is a ghost and the ghost generally, yes, is the antagonist, but um, they're not necessarily always um, evil or dark for the sake of being dark. Often they're just trying to communicate something um, to the one person that they think has enough in common with them to listen. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can't say that I know for sure where my fascination hundred percent came with, but, um, it's, it's been here as long as I can remember. So when you're um, approaching, uh, hauntings and, and, and ghosts and, and, and the alley of death and mutilation, but <laughs> how do you, uh, we know how you set boundaries for yourself. How do you set boundaries for your young readers? Where do, Where's the line when you've gone too far and how do you know if you've crossed it? Yeah, I think this is a tricky one. Um, so for one, I will say that I don't write any gore into my books ever. That's kind of a hard and fast rule for me as a writer. Um, 
I, I, and I'm not saying it's not okay in middle grade. I mean, I think a lot of middle grade books, you know, can do that for me. I just personally don't. Um, I think that it's a bit of a collaborative effort because the way I write is very much to write the scene the way I feel like it should be with the scare factor that I think should be there. But then I have a very talented editor um, who will sweep in and read it and either say, oh, Lindsay, this is going to be parents with pitchforks or, oh, Lindsay, you can go ahead and push this further. I see more room for scares in this scene. Um, And then I always have to temper that as well with, again, the ghosts in my books are their own characters, right? They are people who lived a life and have a history. And I don't want to be disrespectful of that, especially because in some cases they were real people. Um, uh, In the case of the peculiar incident on Shady Street and Scritch Scratch, the ghosts in those books were actual people in Chicago. And so I want to be respectful of the fact that um, they had a story they had a history, they had a life and whatever they're trying to communicate, I want to do it in a, in a fair way. You know, when you think about it, uh, any way a ghost tries to communicate is probably going to be scary to us, right? Um, no matter what they're doing, because it's a ghost. Um, so I, I just try to temper all of these things so that there's kind of a full circle moment. I, I joke a lot that um, this is totally not a genre, but I feel like it should be heartwarming horror needs to be a thing. Cause I think that's where my books would go. I mean, it sounds funny, but yes, I'm going to, I'm going to take you into some dark places. I'm going to scare you. It's going to be frightening, but I promise you there are also warm fuzzies and I'm going to lead you back out into a brighter place by the end. Gotcha. So you're never going to end with, and then they all died. I am not. I am not. I do think that is another element of of middle grade in particular that I love and that I will always really emphasize in my books is there's always hope. I always want to end the book with hope. I I really don't feel comfortable leaving everyone with a grim perspective either on what has happened or the ghost or life in general. Um, So there's there is always going to be that ribbon of hope, even if things aren't perfect. They're not always perfect in real life, um, but they're going to be better. Do you ever worry that uh, having put yourself out there as the spooky middle grade person, you're out there, people know that you love the ghost and ghosts, presumably if they have access to library, I know ghost haunt libraries. We've got a couple of haunted libraries right here in Indiana. So they might pick up a Lindsay Carey book, you know, late at night while all the uh, patrons are gone. I'm like, oh, Lindsay gets it. I need someone to tell my story, Lindsay. I need to talk to Lindsay. (laughs) Okay, well, that would make for some really fascinating stories when I go to schools, I think. I do, you know, I joke that I'm always, you know, keeping my eyes open for ghosts and things, but I know without a doubt, I am not nearly as brave as the characters in my books. Like, I know if my house were genuinely haunted, if we hung up this call today and something started happening uh, that convinced me that there was a spirit in my house, I would have to move. I'd probably have to move. Like I, I know I, I, it's not something I'm not open to experiencing, but I also know my limitations and I don't think I would be nearly as resourceful and brave as my characters are. Um, I'm so proud of my, my characters. I mean, they, you know, they're, this is why I like writing for middle grade audience though. They are such a cool 
age group. I, I, I do so many school visits throughout the year. And I'm telling you, they are some of the most empathetic, resourceful, entertaining people, right? Um, they've got one foot in childhood and, and one foot in adulthood. And that just makes them fun and, and amazing. But I can see because this age group is so special, how these characters can sometimes accomplish things that I think many adults couldn't, including me. So, wow, you know, I, I do not mean this in any kind of uh, condescending way, because I hate when people imply that you've been writing for kids. Are you ever going to write a real book? Bro, these are real books, 100%. Um, but do you think of maybe writing an adult story for the simple reason that then you could kill everybody if you wanted? You could oh. go. Yeah, it would definitely be a different experience. I mean, I can't say that the thought hasn't crossed my mind because, um, you know, Sometimes I, I'm very, um, I'm very story driven, right? Uh, like when my first middle grade, when the peculiar incident on Shady Street became a book, um, it popped into my head just the the idea, and I knew right away it, it wasn't young adult, it, it wasn't adult. It it felt very middle grade. It felt like the kind of adventure that would go over well in a middle grade story, um, and that's a lot of the time what drives what I'm writing. If I were to come up with something that I felt really passionate about, but was convinced it needed to be an adult book, I I might consider writing it. Um, I'm definitely not closed off to the idea. It's more about what, um, what feels exciting to me in the moment. I don't know, maybe I'm still on the inside. Maybe I'm still 12. <laughs> Maybe I didn't quite get away from that age range or something, but middle grade usually is what my stories end up feeling like to me. I think it's probably where I naturally fit right now. Not to say that I wouldn't eventually write something else. And I do have something coming out that is middle grade, but not spooky. So, um, and that's not something I really force off for myself before. Well, that's, I know that one's an adventure story, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. While we're there, I wanted I want to circle back and have one more question about ghosts, but I wanted to talk about the uh, non-spooky adventure treasure hunt. I don't know how much you can talk about, but I read your description and there's an yeah. escape. There yeah. So and in fun house, and I'm listening. To this. I'm like that sounds like a spooky premise a little bit. <laughs> I know, I know, and I had to be very careful not to make it that because um my mind does naturally turn certain things into a spooky thing, even if it's not really. Um, there are no scary elements in that book, um, and I I can only tell you the tentative title. Um, tentatively, it's called the Delta Game. I don't know if that's going to change, but it's very much kind of, um, yeah, it's about these, these three kids who are mathematicians, really. Um, they're very smart and they're very good at escape rooms. Um, very good at escape rooms. So I happen to love escape rooms. I think, you know, either you like them or they make you very nervous, right? It's, it's kind of, uh, it's one of those things that if you've done a few and you think that they're really fun, then great. And you do see some common themes in them sometimes. Some of them are harder than others, but these kids are really good at them. And one of them um, in kind of a, a Goonies-esque type moment um, is uh, losing their home. Their home is being foreclosed on. And um, these kids who call themselves the, Del the Deltas, they're three sides of a triangle. They're, you know, without one, they feel like they just don't work. They start 
brainstorming ways to save this house. And one is this, this fun house that has been abandoned since the fifties. Um, and the rumor is there was a treasure hidden in it by the triplets who created the fun house um, that was never found. And so these kids think if anyone can get in and out of this fun house, it's us. Um, because this is not an average fun house. It's not just warped mirrors and mirror mazes. It's riddles. Um, it's more like a giant escape room. Um, and so the premise is them sneaking in, trying to get in, find this fabled treasure and get out um, before they're caught. And it was really fun to write. I, it's to my knowledge so far, it's going to be coming out in spring of 2024. Um, I don't know an exact month yet and i don't know an exact title yet but um i'm really It'll excited probably get changed <laughs> all of my titles have been changed at little fun fact about me my titles are apparently lame i cannot title a book every single book that i showed you and talked about has been retitled i honestly though they're all better like when my publisher chimes in and says hey let's talk about title um, you know, the first time I went through that, I was a little bit salty. Um, you know, I was like, oh, I, I like my title, you know, I keep my title. And then when you see what they're coming up with and you, this is why publishing is such a collaborative effort and why it's so important to have a team um, of talented people who believe in you working with you, because I couldn't do it without them. Like these titles are so much better than anything I came up with. Um, it's good that you feel that way since they, they keep changing it. I um, know, I know. Lindsay Eager, she said that you should start thinking of your book release date as like um, your due date for a pregnancy. It'll be go. approximately somewhere in this time. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. That's pretty much the case. Yeah, if I were guessing on Delta Game, I would say March of 2024, but we'll see. So it found us September and then Delta in March. Something I find, and I wonder if you, you find this to be true of yourself, but when, when I'm trying my absolute best to get away from being scary, it's still there. Like I just told you about my Indiana Jones worm book, but if you're a worm being chased by a robin, he's got a friend who's a fly who's almost bitten by a spider. These are horror things. These are, these are scary monsters. The the scariest monster I've written about are the giant robot bees and banneker bones. Those are the ones that give me nightmares. Not the not the not the zombies, not the not the actual horror stuff where I'm trying to be as scary as I can. So when you're getting away from that, do you find that that that's something similar where you're you're just haunted by your own imagination that's just bent a little bit toward the dark side? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is a uh a scene in Delta Game with a um a mechanical clown. Uh, <laughs> this is a really hard scene for me to write because the clown is not intended to be scary, but anything abandoned feels a bit scary to me, first of all. I mean, um, if you, uh, so um, I'll give you an example. Over um, the fall, when I was on my book tour, I had the opportunity, my publisher sent me to Colorado where I had three days in Colorado and I visited seven schools and um, I was working with the bookworm of Edwards was the name of the bookstore. And they were amazing. And in fact, one of the people who worked there ended up taking me around one afternoon. We had free to kind of sightsee. Right. And she says to me, well, there's something I really want to show you. Um, it's an abandoned town here, like a ghost town. And you can't actually get 
to this town. Um, you can see it from a, a higher area of a mountain, right? You can pull over your car and you can see it. But the story behind this is that uh, it's been abandoned since the 80s when the FAA basically came in and knocked on everyone's doors. This was a mining town. Um, so there's all these, this cluster of small houses and there's a school and like a movie theater. And then there's a, no joke, a, a ladder. There's still the remnants of it, like a ladder built into the mountain that goes down a thousand feet. And that's what the workers would take down to the mines, the actual mines. And, but all of these homes are, are sitting there um, because in the eighties, when the FAA came in, they knocked on everyone's doors and essentially said, you know, you have to be gone in 24 hours. Um, you got to get out. Um, now there's differing stories. I heard about why that happened. Um, you know, toxic chemicals, something in the soil, something in the water, something in soil and the water, something in the air. Um, but standing on top of that mountain and hearing nothing but wind and looking down at this town that looks as though people were there yesterday. Um, there's cars sitting there, um, you know, and although I don't really support, you know, the kind of urban exploring that my kids do in the Delta game and that people do with that town, if they can get in, um, I have seen videos that show that like medical records are just sitting there. There's dishes in the sinks. It literally looks as though people just vanished. That is eerie. Um, it's just eerie. Anytime you're somewhere like that, or you're watching a video of something like that, it's creepy. So writing the Delta game was hard from that perspective because I kind of find fun houses frightening and I find abandoned fun houses more frightening. So I had to be very careful not to let my imagination go down that path with that book. How'd you safeguard against that? You know, I, it was a constant effort. It really was. And I have very talented critique partners who read over my books in chunks. And the whole theory there is I, I don't, I don't really prefer to write an entire book um, and send it to someone because if I've made um, a, a pretty significant error early on in the book, um, if they are reading it as I'm writing, you know, two, three chapters at a time, they're going to catch it before I have woven that into the entire story. Um, and make me think about it much earlier than I would have. Um, and so my, my main critique partner, um, Jenny Walsh, who is a phenomenal author, shout out to Jenny. So she writes historical fiction, middle grade for Scholastic, and she also writes adult historical fiction for Harper Muse. Um, she read that book as I was writing it and would make note anytime she felt any creepy Lindsay crawling in, right? Um, any have anything that seemed like I might be lending a little too much spook factor to that scene. Um, and a lot of the times I didn't even know I was doing it. So I think it's important to have people who um, have the same interest in your work that you do. They, they, they believe in you. They want it to be the best it can be. And because of that, they're honest. Um. Uh, shout out to Jenny. Thanks for uh, thanks for keeping it honest. <laughs> yeah, thank you for putting up with all of my incredibly rough drafts. <laughs> I do love this idea of a, a dark Lindsay, a creepy Lindsay that comes in that has to be watched out for. Right. It's like that, you know, it's like that um, Treehouse of Horror, the Simpsons episode with the alternate Bart, right? I don't know if you ever saw that one, but the like bad Bart that like lives in the attic or whatever. Uh, that's, that's like the other Lindsay. She's like very ghoulish and she really enjoys the creepy. She tries to make everything creepy. She's why there's a skeleton that still has a Santa hat sitting in the corner of her basement right now. Yeah. 
that for Christmas. That makes yes, sense. yes. I decided we were going to leave him out and just dress him up a little for for the holidays. Oh, that reminds me. I, I had a New Year's resolution. I was going to start telling people the date we record these in case we miss something. We are talking on January 24th of 2023, esteemed audience. So whenever this comes out, if something happened that we're not commenting on, that's why. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so a uh, question, I don't I don't always ask this, but with you, our, our resident uh, self, self-described ghoul <laughs> who, who spends a lot of time um, uh, really thinking about uh, death and spirits and things. What do you think happens when we die? What are you looking forward to upon death? I maybe wish that I knew. You know, it's funny. I, I, what? So maybe not looking forward to. And what just- am I looking forward to? I'm looking forward to being my own ghost. No, um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to haunting you quite specifically. <laughs> You'll be right in the middle of a podcast and I'm going to pull that book off the shelf. No, um, I don't know. I think this is another thing that has changed so much about me from when I was young, you know, because I grew up in um, a very religious household um, where there really wasn't a lot of question um, for anyone about what happened to a person when they died, right? Like that was something that was just ingrained in me. I I knew what was going to happen to all of us when we died. But I also think that at that age, I didn't really have the opportunity to um, explore any ideas of my own. Um, and so over the years, I really, I don't know if I, if I want to say that I've like broadened the way I look at things, but I, I really think that I have, I don't necessarily know the answer to your question, but I do think there is something after, I just don't know what it is. I feel like it's probably good. Um, I feel like this is, uh, I don't know if I want to say temporary, right? But like, it does kind of connect to this idea of ghosts and like a a, a person being a ghost or a spirit um, who could communicate with people. Are they in some sort of middle space? Are they actually someone who can't find peace, right? And this is something that my characters grapple with as well um, because death is a kind of a scary thing, right? And writing this into a middle grade, I have to be careful with the way it's approached. Um, Some young readers will not have experienced death by the time um, they pick up one of my books, right? And so I want to be very careful with um, what I'm insinuating about it um, and how I'm portraying the ghosts and why they are ghosts. Um, I know this is all very vague, but that's because it it is even at my age, very vague in my mind. Um, And I think I've finally come to the conclusion that that's okay, that it's okay to not have the answers. It's okay to not know everything. Um, And then for me, for someone like me, who's very type A to say that um, is an effort because I like to have a plan. You know, Lindsay likes to know what she's doing in the morning, in the afternoon, at night and after death, right? That is just like the kind of person that I am. But I do think in this case, this is one of those things that I have to accept that I just don't know. Um, And that's okay. I love you looking at your empty suitcase. How do I pack for the afterlife? (laughs) Right. What should I do about this? Will it be, what's it going to be like? (laughs) Hopefully there's no snow. (laughs) 
You know, I've uh, gone all over the map in, in terms of, of what I think uh, might happen. Um, I, I flirted with uh, atheism for a while because all the smartest people I know are atheists. I'm like, mm -hmm. I want to be smart. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you just shut down and everything goes away and you don't have to worry about anything anymore is actually the most optimistic version of what happens when you die. Like, mm -hmm. Oh, cool. No, no problem. It's all, it's all done. No problem. Whatever I was worried about, no sense worrying about it now. It's, it's gone. But I become more and more suspicious of reality. I've just seen and felt too many weird things. Like, yeah, there's, there's something going on here. I don't know if it's quite, it's all a simulation, but there's something about reality that I'm not quite 100% buying that makes me think that, nope, there's probably some kind of, of afterlife as well. Uh, when I talked with Amy Christine Parker, another wonderful uh, horror author, um, she and I agreed that part of what had originally set us toward the path of horror was that religious upbringing, that constant focus on what's going to happen when you die. Think about yeah. death. If you die tomorrow, where would your soul go? Do you find that to be true for you as well? It could be. I mean, when I say that I had a religious upbringing, I, I was in church five days a week. Um, it was, it, you know, it was a very intense I, uh, religious upbringing. And um there was a very, very, very strong focus on the afterlife um, and also on the concept really of a very stark heaven and, and hell. Um, and I think that those things definitely shaped me. I know for a fact they made me afraid when I was a kid. You know, I was, it was very, it was a very fire and brimstone kind of approach. Right. Um, and so possibly because I, I do think I remember for some reason, the idea of ghosts being somewhat taboo in church. Now, I don't know if this is across the board. I definitely consider myself a bit more atheist now since we're kind of on that route. But, um, and, you know, being a kid who was interested in ghosts, that didn't really jive with my personality, right? Like, I, I think it would have been something that I would have preferred being able to ask about and get some honest answers rather than we don't ask those kinds of questions, which is how a lot of things were shut down. So yeah, it's very possible that growing up in an environment where um, a lot about the afterlife was just kind of told to you and you were to accept that and to not question anything else could very much have made me want to explore alternatives um, and what what it means when you're gone from this place, you know, what other realms could there be? And you mentioned the word simulation, which genuinely does frighten me. Um, I can't remember the name of the show. Oh, oh, um, love death and robots, um, is a, a show on Netflix that you know, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend for everyone, depending on the age group who's watching this. However, there was a, an episode that featured a, a simulated reality that was terrifying. I thought absolutely terrifying horror in a different way, not ghosts, but um, really, really scary. So I found it interesting that you mentioned that. Let me check that out. What's, which, which episode is that? I don't remember, but after the podcast, I will look it up and send you the title of it because sometimes the titles don't necessarily help you find what episode it is. It's a, it, the show is very odd. It is completely animated, but it's different forms of animation. So, you know, when you watch one episode, the next one may look very different. Some of them are like very realistic, almost like the most realistic looking video game you can imagine. And some of them are more straight up cartoony. Um, it's, it's hard to explain, but, um, 
some of the concepts are really, really interesting. There's another one about a giant that washes on the shore. And that one is very much about death um, and afterlife and uh, washes ashore in a small town. You might want to watch that one as well. It was really interesting. I'll check it out. I always, I always want people to tell me specific episodes or the, if you tell me the show gets good by season two or three, man, there's so much television. I'll never get to it. I know. I know. I know. Well, the, the one, the one about the giant, I think was called the giant or the drowned giant, the drowned giant. So that one, I remember the name of that, the, the, the other one, I can't remember, but I'll, I'll come up with it. Well, I've got uh, more, more endless amount of questions about ghosts. I'm fascinated by the idea of being an atheist now, but still very interested in the afterlife. Because um, what, what freedom? You don't have any any particular uh, religious constraints that you're not allowed to think these thoughts because they're forbidden. You can you can explore and go anywhere you want. But it seems more responsible of me for us to turn to the book that's currently available right now, The Girl in White. Please tell us, team audience, about The Girl in White. Yes, here, let me grab my copy because I uh, I love this cover. So here's the girl in white. So the girl in white uh, is actually, I guess, a little bit of a departure from my other books. Um, it's still a mystery. It's still a ghost story. It's still middle grade. But this one is a bit more fictional. So the town is fictional. It's called Eastport. Um, imagine Salem and Sleepy Hollow kind of put together. That's what Eastport is. But everyone in the town of Eastport is really into legends. Okay. Their claim to fame in Eastport is that they're the most cursed town in the United States. They have like seven cemeteries. They have all of these legends that are passed down for hundreds of years. And they celebrate these legends because their main industry is tourism. So they have these big parades where they celebrate not 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 the day that Eastport became a town, but they celebrate the first legend or they celebrate, you know, something along those lines. They have this massive bone key piano that gets pushed down the main street and they reenact and dramatize all of these things. And my main character, um, Mallory, she has not lived in Eastport her whole life. She's a relatively new transplant to the area. Um, and kind of like Claire and Scritch Scratch, she's not really feeling it. Um, she finds the people to be incredibly quirky um, and everyone is really strange. And she doesn't believe in any of their, you know, ghosts and goblins and legends and all of that. And it's Halloween year round in Eastport as well, which she's not a fan of. Uh, it sounds perfect for me, right? Like, can you tell we just built Lindsay's dream town um, with this book? But um Essentially, she has some very bad experiences. She's been sleepwalking um, and having the same nightmare over and over again. And when she sees the old woman from her nightmares in real life in Eastport one day, um, she starts to suspect that not all of the legends in Eastport are fictional. Um, that one of them, in fact, the legend of Sweet Molly might actually be real and much more dangerous than the people who live there think. So I'm just gonna take one second because I love it and read you the poem on the inside of the girl in white. Sweet Molly once lived in Eastport. Sweet Molly once loved the sea. Sweet Molly lost Liam to the shadows. Now Sweet Molly is coming for ye. She's not sweet, spoiler. <laughs> Molly is really, really not sweet, but I really enjoyed the opportunity to um, 
write something that yes, does have a really small root in history in Salem history, actually, but is largely fictional. All the legends um, for the most part came out of my uh, whacked out brain. Um, the town itself, although I wish that it existed, it does not. Um, but I could see it so clearly in my mind as a place that I wanted to set this book. So it was a really fun writing experience. So um, I know that there, the, 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 the parents own a restaurant called The Hill, and that's based on a real restaurant that's that's in Salem. Yeah. So when you're when you're basing things with this or scratch scratch um when you're basing these fictional histories on real histories how much research do you feel obligated to go to do now it's you so i'm assuming you went to a graveyard nearby and, and and visited some of the people but what else are you doing how are you doing your research and how are you putting that research into the story without info dumping yeah well so scratch scratch was was really research heavy because there's so much Chicago history woven into that. Um, all of those locations are real. And obviously I didn't just want them to feel real, but I want to be accurate, right? Um, it would be uh, embarrassing to completely misrepresent my city and the history, um, given that I've lived here since the late nineties. Um, so I did a ton of research for that. I, I would say, honestly, the first um, three to four months of working on that book, I didn't write one word it was all researching. Um, I visited the Chicago History Museum a ton, which is an absolute gem here in Chicago. Um, they have a research room that is incredible. They have original photographs from a lot of events that you, 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 you put on these fancy white gloves to handle them. Um, and they have people that are very willing to help you find information, no matter how obscure it is. So that's a really cool thing. Um, the girl in white was a little different just because uh, the restaurant that you point out that was in Salem, that is the only uh, historical thing in the book, right? And that actually was the first thing I thought of when I wrote the book was I, I read an article actually about this um, kind of obscure legend. I don't necessarily think it's, you know, Salem obviously is filled with ghost stories and legends and witches and amazing history. I don't necessarily know if the one that um, the girl in white kind of originated with is something that is told everywhere, but I came across an article talking about this restaurant that used to be there um, and how it shared a retaining wall with the cemetery um, next door. And that one night during this terrifically bad storm, that wall started cracking um, and according to, you know, a, a neighbor of a friend of a grandma of a, you know, whatever, um, that, that wall started opening and a, a casket burst through, uh, and slid right into the, the middle of the dining room where people were eating dinner. And of course there are, as with all legends, a million variations, you know, some people said the casket flew open. Some people said that it was a very small casket could have been a child. Some people said that the casket didn't even come from the graveyard, but that there was a hearse driving by that got into an accident and the casket was tossed through the window. Regardless, <laughs> I know it's it's That's wild. You know, this is this is partly what I love about legends. And here I'm getting all hyper about them, is that they're almost like the game of telephone, right? You're almost never hearing what actually happened. Um, either it has been twisted over time because of so many retellings and little errors along the way, or 
people have intentionally mistold it to make it scarier. Um, and that's something I played with with the peculiar incident on Shady Street as well, the real history behind this haunted grave, right? Um, so with the girl in white, when I read that about this casket and this, this restaurant, that was literally my very first seed of the book was, um, I love the idea of this restaurant. What if this restaurant was still running? What if this restaurant was kind of like something you would experience in Disney World, only darker? Um, what if it was a very, um, what if it was more like an experience, right? Like, and everyone is always in character. What if they were dramatizing this? And then I started really thinking of the impact of something like that and dramatizing something that really isn't funny or shouldn't be used for entertainment, like what sweet Molly, the character in the book went through when her brother went off on this fishing boat and never returned. Sweet Molly is on every coffee mug and keychain and t-shirt in this town. And I started thinking about what that means in terms of the town celebrating her grief um, and almost exploiting it. And the entire book really kind of built itself from there, beginning with that little kernel in that restaurant in Mallory's parents. So it was a very different writing experience than any of my others, but um, still was able to put together that little bit of history, fictionalize some really fun history and make an entire town that I wish I could visit tomorrow. When you, without, without spoiling, um, when you've got something like that, how much do you need to know before you start writing? How do you start to wrap a story around that where you're going to have a protagonist, I assume, with a, with a goal uh, who's, who's going to be thwarted and then maybe maybe accomplishes it, maybe not? How do you, how do you is it an active, a conscious act of will where you sit down and say, well, I got to have this, I got to have this? Or does it come to you while you're researching? How do you do it? Um, I am probably the most haphazard author you've ever spoken to, I would suspect, because I don't plot much of anything at all, which is a little scary. I do make sure when I start something, when I genuinely start putting words down, I do make sure that I know my main character, I know their their goals and motivations, um, and I know generally what I'm going to throw in their way. Um, and for me, I really like to throw a lot in their way and make things really, really difficult for them. Um, so generally, I'll have a sense of the beginning, where they're starting, where things are maybe at an even place, right? Um, not perfect, but steady. And then um, I know where I want them to end up often. Um, I have an idea of what I want their arc to look like, but a lot of the time that stuff in the middle is a gray area for me. And that's kind of what writes itself as I'm, um, as I'm writing the project, because I did try many years ago, I tried being a prolific, uh, plotter. I tried writing outlines for things, um, because that is more my personality in real life. I, I prefer to know where things are going to have a plan it oddly doesn't work in my writing life. Um, I found that I, I was trying to smash things into a mold they didn't fit into. I wasn't letting things unfold organically um, and it just didn't work for me. So most of the time now, um, and this does mean that I sometimes have, you know, have to back up and rewrite something or take things a different way, but I would much rather explore that way um, than try to write an outline up, up front. I love the idea that uh, real life you was planning, you're packing your suitcase for the yeah. afterlife, 
And then when you go to write, it's Dark Lindsay's turn. It just all goes out the window. I know Dark Lindsay takes over and she's very chaotic. I don't know what her problem is. She just, things just happen. Um, but no, it's, it's a, it's a much more freeing way to write for me. Um, and I'm fortunate enough that, you know, um, the girl in white is, uh, was my, what, let's see, third book with source books. Um, and with my editor, Annie Berger, who another shout out is an absolute rock star. Uh, she really understands what I'm doing. She understands what I'm trying to do. She always finds a way to bring, the best out of my writing. Um, and I'm sure because of the way I write, that's not always easy. I mean, it's not like I'm always sending her some, you know, and I, and I show students this all the time. I'm not sending her some pitch perfect draft of, of a manuscript that she can just check and say, Oh, good. Sending it off to the printer. I'm often sending her something that I know she has to really get her hands dirty to help me with. I, I would imagine, well, I'm not imagining, I've, I've done it. One upside of, of not plotting too heavily, especially when you're writing scary, is you can't make it predictable if you don't, if you haven't predicted it, anything yeah. can happen, right? Yes, that's, and it's funny, my, my critique partners will say things like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next. And my general response is, me too. <laughs> I have no idea what's going to happen next. I hope it's going to be fun. Do you plan like at least maybe like three moves ahead, like it's a chess game? Like I know this is definitely going to happen. I want this to happen so we can approach yeah. kind of 250 pages in, but it's better start thinking about a climax. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely certain junctures that I know things have to happen. I mean, uh, you know, as you know, pacing is really important um, with this type of book. And so I need to make sure that things are moving at a rational clip. Uh, they can't be too slow um, and too boring, or my readers are going to put down the book, which is my my worst fear, right? Um, and they can't go too fast or they're not going to care about my characters or be invested in my characters. And the mystery part won't work either because all of my books have um, a strong component of a mystery in there where I am putting clues in certain places. And I, I want my readers to be able to follow them to some degree and at least try to solve this mystery along with my characters. Um, that's actually one of the reasons I loved in The Girl in White. Um, let me show you. I got a limited edition for this book because Sourcebooks is amazing. And the first three chapters have a QR code. And when readers scan the QR code, it takes them to three separate hidden areas of my website with riddles that are related to the mystery. So if they solve the riddle or think they've solved it, they can then go to the back of the book where there's this very cool page with like a sleuthing page. They can see if their answers to the riddles fit in the spaces properly and then answer some predictions. Um, and I love that. I, I love that kind of interactive quality, but that also really wouldn't work if, if I didn't have the right pacing, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I guess to answer your question in a very long way, yes, I often know at least what the next chapter or two will hold. Um, but beyond that, generally, no. Well, when you're, when you've got a mystery in there, do you at least know the solution to the mystery? Yes. Yes. I usually know the solution and generally for some reason, when I start a book, the beginning and, and the end are, um, are pretty, uh, clear in my mind. 
Um, I, I really know where I want my characters to end. There may be small changes as I go to how that wraps up, but generally I have a really solid clue of that. Um, and, and the stuff in the middle, how we get there, the actual executing and the actual adventure that they're on, that is what changes a lot as I'm writing. Of course, uh, another potential pitfall with, with any fiction, but, but particularly with the scary, spooky stuff, uh, is one, the ghost can't kill your protagonist right away or the story's yeah. over. <laughs> so there has to be a plausible way that that doesn't happen, but also yep. scares have to graduate. Once you you scare the, the reader once early in the story, the next scare has to be scarier than that or we're just treading water, right? So how do, do you find yourself? Uh, like I, I find myself occasionally in trouble where I'm like, well, this isn't as scary as what happened before and I got to find a way to, to ramp this up. How do you how do you do that? Uh, well, first of all, um, often at the outset of my books, not always, but often the ghost is a bit um, distant right? Um, meaning they don't have direct access to my character, whether or not it be their home or their school or their bedroom or anywhere my character might normally feel safe. Um, so at the beginning of the book, um, I keep the scares a little bit more distant and then they come closer, if that makes sense. So these scares are going to start invading my character's personal life, invading their personal space, making my character feel as though they don't have any safe places anymore. Um, and that trapped sensation, I think, is a very good distinguisher between horror and just mystery thrillers or psychological thrillers, is that sensation of, oh, geez, this bad thing is barreling down on me and I can't get away. There is nowhere I can go. My only alternative is to face it, right? Um, great great lesson for readers and great message about facing whatever, you know, monsters they're facing in real life, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a ghost. Um, it can be anything in real life that's hard or troubling or frightening, um, because those things do eventually encroach on our safe spaces. Um, and we do eventually have to face them in some way or another. So that's one of the ways I do it. And then the other way is just, uh, I really have a horrific imagination. Um, and so sometimes I will come up with in advance some of the ways that um, I can see this ghost tormenting my main character um, and I'll kind of categorize them, right? Um, you know, baby tormenting all the way to, ooh, things are serious over here. And I'll leave some of those for, you know, middle toward the end. So I can really drive my character off the deep end, <laughs> really, really make things as bad as I can before they turn the corner. That's a good point that uh, even some of us presumably are out there battling ghosts, uh, but there is always going to be that metaphorical obstacle that we're all going to have to to tackle. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I think that it's, especially in middle grade. I mean, we all need this to some degree, but especially in middle grade, I, I love the ability to be able to write something that's dark, but that still has a silver lining and a hopeful theme, right? Um, because my books are dark. And I mean, especially if you look at the cover for It Found Us, it's absolutely petrifying. You wouldn't think when you look at that, that there's going to be, um, themes of family and friendship and bravery and empathy or any of the things that matter to me as a person and as a parent. Um, but there is the opportunity to put those things in there and, and to weave them in there so that 
I think my reader walks away with the understanding that, hey, Lindsay's character went through some really bad things um, and she didn't just survive. Like she faced them and, and she's thriving now. Like I, I can do this, right? Um, I may need to find someone to help me. But that's another big theme in my books is that it's um, it's okay to need help. It's okay to be afraid. Um, Claire and Scritch Scratch is a great example. She has horrific, uh, horrific anxiety um, and often tries to handle things herself without sharing things with people and, you know, learns that we're all human. It's okay to need help with something and it's okay to not be great at everything um, and to ask for that help. Um, so I, I do, I think that that's something that comes out a lot in my books as well. At least I hope it comes out because it's important to me. I guess that never uh, occurred to me having always been great at everything, but I guess it's for other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see how maybe like, that's just one of those things that hadn't come on your radar before, but the rest of us flawed humans, Rob, the rest of us flawed humans, we need that boost. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So It Found Us does have a fantastically creepy uh, cover. Um, what? Uh, give us the elevator pitch. What does esteemed audience need to know about It Found Us so they could be pre-ordering their copy right now? Oh my goodness. I am so excited for this book. Um, so It Found Us to me is most like Scritch Scratch um, in terms of uh, fear factor, Maybe maybe a little scarier than Scritch Scratch, but also a very strong historical element. Um, does not take place in Chicago, but takes place in the Chicago suburbs. Um, and I did a bunch of research for this one um, that was very scary, very eerie. Um, it follows um, it follows the story of my main character Hazel, who considers herself um, an amateur detective. And Hazel is very much who I think young Lindsay kind of was in a lot of ways. I always wanted to be wrapped up in some mystery and there just were no mysteries to be had in my tiny little farming community. So um, I'm like living vicariously through Hazel, but Hazel, unfortunately, her her family um, really, they're always poo-pooing her, her, uh, her sleuthing. Um, they call it snooping and they're always telling her, you know, please let other people deal with their problems. You know, don't, don't always insert yourself. Yes, you have a gift, but you have to learn how to use it. Right. Like don't, don't meddle, you know, you meddling kids, that kind of thing. Um, and it's very hurtful to Hazel. Um, and one night she, she's, she's got this dream of, of launching this podcast actually, um, where she, kind of uh, kind of like a true crime podcast but for younger younger listeners where she solves mysteries through this podcast and uh she hears or overhears her brother planning to sneak into the local graveyard at night for a game of hide and seek which what a terrible idea uh so she's she's very intrigued everyone in their town knows the stories of that graveyard that it's haunted people generally try to avoid it but in hazel's mind this could be a good opportunity um because maybe she will see or hear something that will be amazing for this first episode of her podcast which by the way she doesn't even have permission to do yet okay she's just planning She's a planner. Um, so she sneaks out of the house and follows him. And during this game of hide and seek, her brother, Den, is the seeker. Everybody runs off. He finds all but one, and that one never comes back. Um, Everett Michaels, his best friend, seemingly vanishes into thin air during this game of hide and go seek. 
a terrible storm comes in, there's howling, there's scary sounds, eerie, ghostly sounds, everyone flees. And unfortunately, by the next morning, Everett is still nowhere to be found. Um, and Hazel is officially on the case because she believes that the adults and the police are overlooking potentially the real reason that Everett is missing. Uh, and spoiler, there's ghosts. So um, I'm really, really excited about that book. It was fun to write. I think it's very scary. I think the cover is a perfect representation of the book. I've never seen a cover that I have loved more so instantaneously. Um, it's it's wonderful. Well, I hope that uh, Hazel is is recording for the podcast immediately upon those events happening. Just speaking as a fellow podcaster, I'm sorry all that's happening, but by God, get it on tape. Make I get sure. it. Listen, make sure it's going. There are pieces of it that she has. There are pieces of it that she has. She does start the second she gets in there, um, but there's a bit of a starting and stopping. So. Oh my goodness. I, I can't wait for you, to, especially since you um, are such an avid podcaster. I can't wait for you to read it because uh, it's, it was a really fun book, a scary book to write. I mean, I, I still, I even, I, I did uh, recorded a video um, for people at source books about it. And I said, genuinely, and honestly, I still get chills when I think about some of the scenes in the book. That is a little bit problematic. We talked, uh, or can be, uh, we talked a bit earlier about setting boundaries for your readers, setting boundaries for you and the types of horror stories that you're going to take that other people have written. But when it's just you and your imagination, especially when you're not plotting and you don't know how dark this dark area you're going into is going to get, how do you protect you from you? You know, I, I do think that there is, I do have enough self-preservation when I'm writing that kicks in that doesn't allow me to go too far. I'm one of those people that's really, um, it's not just about the visual, right? It's about what I'm imagining. So it could be sounds or out. out here's a great example. Um, do you remember Blair Witch? When okay. Blair Witch Okay. Blair Witch was probably the first movie and I saw it in a small movie theater here in Chicago. I remember it was like a limited release when this thing came out, right? Like it wasn't in all theaters. It wasn't even huge. And I remember my husband and I went, we were like, oh, it sounds fun, right? Had no idea what to expect. Um, that movie shows so little, right? But you hear and imagine so much of it that your imagination fills in the gaps. Um, I was terrified terrified at the end of that movie. I remember writing home and my husband saying, are you okay? And he was like, it that, that wasn't even that, like, it was like virtually no blood, you know? And I was like, yeah, but it really hit me differently, right? Really differently. Um, and I think that's a lot of the time what I do with my book. So I don't think you're necessarily going to be scarred when you're reading a scene because of what I am showing you, but there are a lot of uh, ambiance things going on, right? That when you put them all together with your imagination, those are going to be the things that get you in your reading. So when I'm writing them, for example, I'm not necessarily um, thinking of the absolute scariest thing I can possibly imagine right now. I'm thinking of this building to this most scared feeling you can possibly have before you have to make some sort of, essentially for these kids, life or death decision. They want to get this boy back. They believe they are the only people who can bring him back from whoever has him. And, and the police and the adults think that, you know, he ran away, which is not true. 
Uh, yeah, no, uh, Blair, Blair Witch might be one of the scariest experiences I ever had in a theater. And it does <laughs> polarize people that um, some people are like, what, what's the big deal? And, yeah. and uh, you can't sleep after. I know Stephen King. Uh, I read an interview where he said that he had he, he had to ask his kids to shut it off uh, partway through. He couldn't he couldn't take it. Well, yeah. scared. And I, I feel yeah. better how scared I was. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I just think that it was such a new not only was it a new form of of storytelling at the time, um, it, it was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, but how little it showed and the way it, it built, I really try to mimic that feeling in a lot of ways when I'm, when I'm writing books, you know, they're not just showing you scene after scene of terrifying things in that movie. They're creating a, a suspenseful feeling building to certain things that, you know, they hit a lot harder when they show them, even though they're not gory and they're not, you know, it's not a person with an ax, you know, chopping people up. It is, it is something very different, but because of how much they withhold in that tension, I think it's it's even more effective for someone like me. I'm curious if you feel this way. When I'm writing, the thing that scares me is not necessarily the monster that I'm writing to scare the reader. Um, although there, there's there's a bit of scariness there, but it's a, it's a little thing that's along the way. An example, um, I wrote a, a, a story, Pizza Delivery, available now, um, in which there's literally an axe murderer chasing around our our, our heroic pizza guy, um, and that that's that 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 that's all very concerning. But what scared me is the way that uh, he's hiding from this axe murderer with the axe murderer's daughter, and the way that he is able to, um, without spoiling, separate himself from her for his own preservation. Ah. Uh. I know yeah. that although the characters are never me, there's a bit of an appro a proximity of, of what would I do in this situation. And that terrified me. It wasn't, yes. it wasn't murder. It was that moment where, like, oh, he is capable if, he, if he's preserving himself of letting this little girl go over here. Yeah. So he you know, it's kind of the, you know, Frankenstein versus the creator thing, you know, here. Who's, who's the real monster? What are we capable of when we're really pushed to to our limits, right? And in middle grade, I think we can explore that to some degree, right? Um, generally, I think that my characters are, I want this experience to not just be a terrifying one, you know, in their lives, but also something that teaches them something about themselves, right? Um, perhaps they, you know, they, they need to come out of this a little bit differently. And it can't be in middle grade, the kind of different that is, um, well, you know what, if we actually get into this situation, um, sorry guys, I like you, but I think I can run faster than you. So I'm probably going to be the one that's okay. Uh, it has to be a collaborative effort. It has to be a, Hey, we're going to look out for each other, even though that might make this harder type thing. There's a lot of messages about teamwork. And, um, I love, love, love the kind of like unlikely partnerships too, um, in middle grade, right? You know, the kid maybe you never thought you would be talking to or working with or interested in having any conversations with being the one person that maybe can be the one that can help you and vice versa. Um, so yeah, but I, I absolutely get what you're saying. You know, there have been a lot of shows and books like um, you, for example, even you, you know, uh, Joe is capable of rationalizing awful things, right? 
saying that yeah, this, this is what has to happen and this is why. And those things can be even scarier than the act itself. Especially when he occasionally hits on something where you know what, I kind of see his point. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Joe. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, really. That one thing. Eh? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Let's see, I could talk to you all day. We're going to have to do this again sometimes. But... I know, I've had so much fun. And now you now you know all about ghoulish Lindsay and her 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 creepy dark side. So there you go. I've just spilled it all. Yeah, next time I just want to talk to, to, to ghoulish Lindsay. <laughs> I'll, I'll have one more cup of coffee next time and that's who you'll get. One more probably <laughs> will push me over the edge. I stopped myself today. Next time I'll just, I'll let it go. That's the thin line. That's all it takes. It, <laughs> yeah. That's that that threshold. <laughs> it's like uh, feeding a gremlin or a, a, yeah, a little gizmo after midnight. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Don't give Lindsay more than one cup of coffee in the morning or she becomes insufferable. Um, for today, my final question is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been most helpful, and give yourself some advice that would have made easier your path, that might make easier the path of everybody who's watching or listening to us now, what would you go back and tell yourself? You know, I think probably that the one thing that I wish that I could have told myself, and I don't know that I personally don't know if I would have listened to me, um, but is it, it's, it's none of it is a race. <laughs> none of it is a race. I think that we are all so um, used to instant gratification um, and we, we crave that um, instant gratification on everything that when I first started writing, despite the fact that I had no guidance, I didn't know any authors, I didn't have anyone to kind of curb my enthusiasm for it. Um, I wanted that instant gratification. And because of that, I, I made things go way too quickly. I forced things, you know, that they weren't ready. They weren't ready. And I think deep down, I probably knew that they weren't ready, but I made a lot of mistakes. And it's not that mistakes aren't okay, because that's how we learn. Um, but I think it's the rushing part and feeling like we're trying to beat some kind of buzzer that I wish that I had known is not necessary. You know, our, our society tends to emphasize youth, you know, and a 30 under 30 and all these different lists and none of that matters um, at all. Um, you know, I, I'm way beyond 30, you know, have three virtually adult children. And I feel like my career is really just starting um, but it took me a long time to get here and that's okay. So I guess if I could go back in time or anyone who's listening that wants to be a writer or really whatever it is you want to do, even if it has nothing to do with writing, um, you really don't have to rush, take your time, let it evolve, let yourself become who you're going to be in that and you will find your way into it. There is no benefit to being, um, on a, in a full sprint. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? So I am on Twitter and Instagram at, at Lindsay and Curry. Um, I am also, my website is lindsaycurry.com. No middle initial on my website. I just like to be tricky that way. Um, I'm on TikTok at uh, Lindsay Curry author as well. 
Um, I funny story about TikTok though. You can find me there. I'm not on there as much as I used to be. I had a post go absolutely crazy on there about a year ago and I had millions of views and it was a non-book related post that was so strange. I know. Um, and so I, I, I've yet to truly understand how to harness everything on TikTok. It's, it's an interesting place, but it's one where I can also lose a lot of time. Um, so I try to only be on there uh, limited, but yeah, any of those places, um, if you're interested in, in chatting with me, you can reach me through, through my website really easily. I do a ton of school visits and that's honestly one of my very favorite things to do. So reach out if you want to chat. Hi, as always, esteemed audience for more interviews, almost as good as this one, uh, with agents, editors, authors, book people, the world's best people. Head to middlegradeninja.com. Get your copy of Rob Worm's Bird Adventure. It will blow your mind. It will change your life, I promise you. And as always, God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.